0: Good morning. Thank you to Mike and Jennifer for doing music for us. technical difficulty. Thank you to Mike and Jennifer for doing music. Thanks for Eric for bringing me batteries. Um, I'm so proud of myself because this is one of the first, one of the few times I actually turned on the microphone before I walked up. I thought, okay, I'm just going to go right into it. And uh, the batteries were going to die on me. So thank you for that. Um, John chapter 16 is where we'll be this morning. Thanks to everyone for braving the Uh, The ice, Uh, John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for the opportunity we have today to come together to worship you. Lord, and may we faithfully have hearts and minds, Lord, that are pointed to you. Lord, we pray for people who have various afflictions. We continue to pray for Ruby as she's recovering Lord, from this broken wrist. Thankful that she's on the mend. We continue to pray for Ron Yergler, Lord, as he's still at the hospital in Hopeston, Lord, and we pray for his recovery. We're thankful that Marsha is recovering from COVID. Lord, we continue to pray for John's brother. Lord, we we lift these people up. We pray for our time as we study your word today. May we be pointed to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There wasn't a definitive plan. On April 4th, 1841, William Henry Harrison, America's ninth president, died just one month into his presidency. Before that, America had seen two vice presidents die in office. But Harrison was the first president to die while in office. When the vice presidents had died, we actually just didn't have a vice president. The office sat vacant until the next presidential election because there wasn't a constitutional mechanism for filling the vacancy. But we had to have a president. When Harrison died, a controversy arose over who would be the next president. Harrison's vice president, John Tyler, would serve as president in the interim, But for how long? Should a new election be held? Should Tyler finish out Harrison's entire term, which was just a month old? And while this was being sorted out, should Tyler have the privileges and responsibilities of the presidency? Many didn't want to even call Tyler president. They gave him titles such as vice president, acting president, or his ascendancy. Or to be condescending, some called him the usurper. Most of the Harrison cabinet opposed Tyler becoming president, and the Supreme Court was hesitant to weigh in on the decision. Eventually, a compromise was met, and Tyler was able to serve the remainder of the term as the tenth president. And that became a precedent that was in place for over a hundred years until the formal succession was established. In the 25th Amendment in 1967. There wasn't a plan place when Harrison died. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, while telling the disciples of his imminent departure, he showed the disciples that everything that was happening and that was about to happen was part of a divine plan. We saw that last week and in preceding sections of this gospel. And we see it again in our passage this morning. Jesus knew from the beginning that his time was short, yet he did not leave his disciples without a plan. Now, before we pick up in chapter 16, I think it's helpful to remember the last couple sections of John chapter 15. And I apologize for this, but one of these sections we actually preached in the summertime, so we might be a little bit rusty. Chapter 15 has a section where Jesus is telling the disciples about the opposition and persecution that they're going to face. To quote an excerpt from that passage. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So what Jesus is saying in that section is that the world hated Jesus and will therefore hate his followers. Because Jesus is persecuted, his followers will also face persecution. And Jesus says that the reason is because the persecutors don't really know God. So you have persecution. But chapter 15 ends with Jesus talking about the provision for his disciples when he's gone. The disciples will have the Holy Spirit. This is what we preached on last week, verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And that matters because a time was coming when Jesus would not lock the earth, but a worldwide ministry will go forth in his name, in the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, with his disciples, and with ultimately all of his followers. The Spirit works both within the followers of Jesus and the Spirit bears witness to the world through the followers of Jesus and through his disciples. So, Jesus has told the disciples what to expect and how he will provide. And with that, we come to chapter 16. And in this section, we'll be pointed to two warnings and a providential God. First... The first warning is the risk of falling away, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. When Jesus says these things, I take that to be what he has already been saying in the preceding sections. Everything he's just said was to keep the disciples from falling away. Jesus gives a warning of apostasy. apostasy is the theological term for the idea of falling away from the faith. Now, before we continue, I must ask a question. Can a person who believes in the gospel stop believing in the gospel? Can a person who believes in the gospel fall away? The answer to that question is a cause of disagreement in Protestant circles. At this church... We teach that a person who has genuinely come to faith in Christ cannot lose that. That if a person truly has faith, if they truly have faith in the gospel, that they are justified and forgiven of their sins. And you can't lose justification. You can't be justified one day and unjustified the next and then re-justified again. And you can't lose justification because justification is a work of Christ that he has earned for a believer. Now, the Gospel of John does not specifically use terms like justification, assurance, eternal security. But we do see ideas in John's Gospel where Jesus talks about not losing his followers. John chapter 6, verse 37 He says, all that the father has given to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. A couple verses later, John six, verses 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The passage we looked at last year. The Good Shepherd passage, John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mentioned this last week, but in John 3. Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born again, and that he had to be born of the Spirit. Born again refers to regeneration, which is the new spiritual life that God grants a person through the Holy Spirit. The result of regeneration is faith, and a person who has been regenerated cannot lose faith. Once you know the gospel, there's no going back. So then why does Jesus talk about falling away? To reiterate, you can't lose authentic salvation in Christ as a regenerated, born-again believer. But there are two things that can happen which can cause apparent falling away. First, you can have a person who is a false convert, someone who never genuinely believed in the gospel in the first place. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, talks about this idea where, Jesus, where John says... They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The Bible is clear that there are people who will walk the walk, who will talk the talk, but who do not actually have faith. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, there can be people who say the right things, who appear to do the right things, but who do not actually believe in the gospel. And they might be really nice people, and they might know a lot about the Bible, but they don't actually know Jesus or believe in the gospel. The Matthew chapter 7 passage is one I quote pretty often, and I think it's important to revisit that passage semi-regularly as a continual reminder that a person can fool their spouse can fool their pastor, they can fool their church board, but you cannot fool an all-knowing and righteous God. So that's the first type of apparent apostate, the person who doesn't actually have faith. The second type of apparent apostasy is the person who does have faith, who actually has been made regenerate, but who allows sin, fear, or worldliness to cloud their judgment This person, who does have true faith, will ultimately repent of what they have done and return to Christ. And among the disciples, we actually see examples of both of these. There's Judas, who betrays Jesus, who never truly believed in Jesus or knew Jesus. But then you also have the Apostle Peter, who famously denies Jesus three times. And it's actually on the same evening that Jesus... Jesus is speaking here in this passage. When Jesus is arrested, Peter is fearful for his own safety and denies knowing Jesus. Yet he later realizes the error of what he's done because he does know Jesus and loves Jesus. Now, this is a difficult passage. The subject matter is difficult, the theology is difficult. But this is what's important. True falling away is impossible. But the Bible warns us about falling away for several reasons. I'll give three, though I'm sure there's other reasons a person could think of. First, we're given warnings so that believers will not be caught off guard when people from within the church renounce their faith. And when that happens, those people fall into one of two camps. Either they never believed in the beginning, or they do believe and they will return to the faith. But it does happen. And it's tragic. But we shouldn't be surprised when it does happen, because the Bible warns us about it. Second, warnings can cause genuine believers to reassess their faith. Even if you know Jesus, love Jesus, are walking with Jesus it's still acceptable to affirm and confirm what you believe. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The point for this is not to have us doubt our faith, but to question if we're certain of our faith. If we're certain of what we believe in about Jesus. Third reason why we're warned about Falling away. If a person is a false convert, it points to the true gospel. And being pointed to how faithless activity isn't what God desires, it can point to what God does desire. He wants us to love him and have faith in Jesus. And so the Bible warns us. And these warnings of falling away are a great grace to us. Because the warnings can have a way of forcing a person to consider what they truly believe about Jesus. So Jesus has talked about persecution in the preceding chapter. He'll reiterate some of those ideas. But the reason why Jesus is saying any of this and what this hinges on is the warning against falling away. With that, we come to our second point. And Jesus will again Warn the disciples about the persecution they will face. So the second warning of persecution. Verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now that's a pretty dire warning that Jesus is giving to his disciples. When he talks about them being thrown out of the synagogue... That might not have all that much resonance to us. But he's pointing to the ostracism that they will face from their community. That following Jesus is a new life. And it's a good thing. And it's true life. But that doesn't mean that there aren't difficulties, broken relationships, and sorrow. That there's a cost to following Jesus. The longer I'm at this church the more I appreciate the people who founded this church 52 years ago. Faithful people who founded Christian Bible Church. For many of them, that came at a cost. Many were leaving another church where there was hurt, strained relationships. That had to have been hard. It came at a cost. Following Jesus comes at a cost. Jesus is telling the disciples of the tribulations they'll face for following him. Many in our world have lukewarm faith that doesn't ask anything of you or expect anything from your fellow Christians. That's easy enough. But real faith, really living for Christ, that comes at a cost. The world will accept someone who's a Christian in name only, saying you go to church, but then actually believing in the Bible, actually walking with Jesus, actually living for that, That's not looked upon so favorably. Now, I'm certainly not saying that here in America we face the persecution that is anything close to the early church or to what many Christians around the world face today. We don't. But that doesn't change that there is always a cost in following Jesus. Verse 3, he says, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Similar to an idea in chapter 15. Jesus gives a reason as to why the disciples will face persecution. Because the persecutors do not know the Father, nor do they know the Son. The same world that killed its own Savior will also not tend to be favorable to his followers. For the disciples, they would see that very very quickly. In the book of Acts which covers the life of the early church, chapter 7, we see the martyrdom of the apostle Stephen. We see a Pharisee named Saul persecuting the early church before the Lord intervenes in his life and calls him to be an apostle, more famously known as Paul. But there was persecution in the early church. In those years, in those early years, it generally did not come from Rome. Rome was pretty tolerant of other religions. America is a pluralistic nation. Even though we don't agree with the beliefs of other religions, we do affirm that people have the right to believe what they want to believe. Rome was also pluralistic. There were incidents of persecution that would come in the following centuries, but that was never empire-wide. The earliest persecution of Christians came from Israelites, like Paul, like the people who stoned Stephen. And that's exactly what Jesus is warning about when he talks to the people being cast out of the synagogues and killed. Jesus says, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says, The hour. Other times in this gospel, Jesus and the author of the gospel of John will refer to Jesus' hour. And what that's referring to is the hour of his death and glorification on the cross. But here, Jesus refers to the disciples' own hour. That they too will have a time when they will suffer just as Jesus has. Aside from the Apostle John, church tradition tells us that all the other apostles ended up being martyred for their faith. From church history, we see other early leaders in the church, people who aren't named in the Bible, but who were influential leaders and pastors in the early church who were martyred for the cause of Christ. Christ. Why does the world hate Christianity so much? Again, in America, we're still pretty safe. But that's not the case for Christians and so much of the rest of the world. Now, Jesus already gave a reason in verse 3 when he says, they do not know the Father nor me. And certainly that's at the heart of persecution. People who don't truly know God. But within that domain... There are various reasons why people express such disdain for Christianity. Open Doors International, which is a a ministry that advocates for persecuted Christians, in an article I read this week, lists five reasons. Certainly not an exhaustive list, but important factors that lead to persecution. First, Jesus' competition for power. Jesus said that you cannot serve two master's. You look at totalitarian regimes who have tried to push Christianity out and who have persecuted churches. Why do they do that? Because a dictator doesn't want competition. Jesus is the Lord. Tyrants want people to worship the government. According to Open Doors, one in eight Christians around the world today faces persecution and discrimination because of their faith. Second, Christianity challenges the surrounding culture. No matter the culture, Christianity and Bible teachings will fly in the face of that society. Even ancient Israel, which was founded as a theocracy, drifted in their belief. There will be values and beliefs among Christians which do not fit within their society. That's increasingly becoming true in America. Our society has totally rewritten its ethics of sexuality and gender over the last 20 years. To borrow an idea from Carl Truman, for a Christian today to hold to biblical teachings on sexual morality is viewed by the secular society on a similar moral plane to being a racist. There's what the Bible values and what society values. Our modern secularizing America, likes to tell us we're good. We shouldn't have any shame. We should speak and live how we see best because we know what's best for us. Find yourself. We like to undermine moral absolutes, except for tolerance, which we co-opt and call love, even when it's harmful. And we treat that as if that's the only moral absolute. And we act as if we're tolerant. I saw this this morning from the Gospel Coalition. The world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. The world says, discover yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. The world says, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. The mantras of the world are pathetic substitutes for the words of Christ. End quote. Third reason. Doing good means opposing bad. Living for Jesus means that there are other things you are not living for, and that offends the sensibilities of a sinful world. Fourth, you have a new identity in Christ, and a new identity is dangerous. There are all sorts of identities people claim racial identity, gender identity. We can be separated by the identity of where we're from, who our family is, how much money we have, how much education we have, what our politics are, and on and on. But as a Christian, we are supposed to find our identity in Christ. Quoting from the Open Doors article, in many places around the world, religious faith is tied up in questions of ethnicity, culture, and family. When a person converts to following Jesus, they are doing more than adopting a new belief system. They're often viewed as having turned their backs on their families, their friends, their communities, and even their nation, end quote. I remember our friend Justin Crone has been with us a couple of times, does great work in his ministry. Justin was raised Jewish, who is now a Christian, and I remember him even sharing that as somebody who was raised Jewish when he became a Christian, that that's that's not viewed in a positive light. It's viewed almost as turning his back on his own heritage. And I think that's important to always keep in mind. That for some people to come to Christ, depending on what their family situation is or what their background is, it's one thing if you have a Christian family and one of your kids becomes a Christian, they will rejoice in that. But if you're a family or a community that doesn't believe in the gospel, for somebody who does start following Jesus, there's pushback on that. It's not as simple as saying, I want to be a Christian, and everyone in the world saying, oh, I think that's great. Fifth, Jesus is a competition for other beliefs. If Christianity is true, that means other things, and in particular other religions, are false. In America, that totally offends our sensibilities because we like to think that everything can be true so long as someone believes in it. But truth isn't defined by people. Truth is defined by its correspondence to reality. And I would add a sixth reason that's not in the article. People do not like the evangelistic values that the Bible teaches. You can believe what you want to believe, but don't try to make other people believe what you believe. Which is basically, people have their belief that you can believe what you want to believe, but you shouldn't share what you believe to make other people believe what you believe. You get the point. People spout off on politics. People spout off on their own made-up philosophies. People will appeal to a book they read, or an article they read, or a news story they saw, something that they heard, but to talk about the Lord in polite society? No, that's forbidden. And there are many other reasons we could point to why the world opposes the gospel. In Jesus' day, there was the certainty of persecution. And then it's continued throughout the history of the church. Again, I'm not saying in America in 2022, we're facing the hardships that other people face But there is pushback, there is pressure, and there is dislike for Christianity. Again, you can have a lukewarm faith, nobody cares about that. In spite of opposition throughout history, the church has grown. It's grown into a worldwide movement with billions of followers. In spite of the fact that, again, one in eight today face persecution. People around the world today have to meet in secret in underground churches out of fear of persecution they'll face. So Jesus is giving a warning about falling away. He's given a warning about persecution. We come to our third point, and Jesus reminds us that we have a providential God. Verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Once again, we see the word hour. It seems to be used for ironic effect in this instance. Jesus' hour is the hour of his death, which is when he's glorified. The persecutor's hour is the time when they think that they're thwarting the Christian movement, but when they're instead fulfilling the divine plan in their reaction. And Jesus gives these warnings because Jesus does not want his followers to be surprised or blindsided that the world opposes the gospel or is hostile to the message and will face opposition. In fact, there are warnings given throughout the New Testament. I'll give just a couple examples. But it's something that's talked about constantly in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 18. Jesus says to the disciples... Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Another example, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, Peter is pointing to the sufferings of Christ and saying, As he suffered, his followers will also suffer. So, in John 16, Jesus is preparing the disciples, and in passages throughout the New Testament, the writers are preparing the church for the trials that will be, will, be, will be faced as a result of following Christ. That's one of the things I appreciate about the Bible and the New Testament and the ministry of Christ. That it is always grounding you in reality. The Bible in general says a lot about suffering and the trials we face in life. It's just that those passages aren't fun to read. But it's talked about. The Bible gives an accurate depiction of the world as it is. You hear politicians talk. So many of them paint this picture of utopia. Just vote for me, and it'll be better. Some people think that if their candidate wins, it'll be better. And it's never that simple. Because the Bible says, no, the world has fallen and people are sinful. And as we're discussing right now, the Bible does not hide from the reality of persecution that the church will face. Because God wants us to be prepared. At the end of the passage, what Jesus is saying is that the people who will persecute you will think that they're accomplishing something. But his point is that they'll think that, but it won't be true. Instead of thwarting God's plan, it's working in conjunction with God's plan. And as we continue in John 16, Lord willing, next week, we'll see more and more of how this works in God's plan. But I close with this for today. What is the heart of this passage? It's a passage about trusting God in spite of tremendous difficulties when they arise. As we said earlier, the Bible always grounds us in reality. The Bible is honest about the fallen state of the world and the difficulties of being a disciple and living for Jesus. In spite of the challenges, are you still committed to following Jesus? For some, it might seem unappealing. These talks about persecution and difficulty and unpopularity But who are the people who you've looked at in your life and thought, wow, that was a life. That was a life well lived. I'm sure there's great people you can think of. But no one ever lived like Jesus. Jesus was scorned, persecuted against, betrayed, but no one ever lived a life of greater triumph. Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Jesus wept, but still no one ever lived a life of greater joy. He only lived 33 years, but no one ever lived a life of greater fullness. As John's Gospel ends, the Apostle says that Jesus did so much that if it were to all be written down, the whole world would not contain those books. You see Jesus serving, loving people, and walking in righteousness and holiness. That is real living. And it's the life that he invites us into. Obviously, we aren't Jesus, but the point I'm making is that Jesus endured incredible adversity and opposition and challenges. But living a life to honor God, living a life in pursuit of holiness, living a life to serve, that that is where true life and purpose and meaning are found. So it is a great paradox that the way to live the best and truest life is a life that will also invite difficulty. There are easier ways to go through life, but it isn't really living to the fullest. What is it that you're living for? Is it for yourself? Is it just to get by? Or is it for the Lord Jesus? And if it is, are you willing to live for him and walk with him And trust in him, even in the difficulties that he promises we will face in a fallen world. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the many blessings that we do have, Lord. And for the freedoms that we have to worship you. Lord, we think of those who face... Threats to life and limb, threats to their families, threats to their livelihoods, for following you, Lord. Lord, may you strengthen your church locally and globally. Lord, may we be people who passionately live lives to your glory and who are disciples who make disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.